I was, uh, I was seated at a restaurant <clears throat> waiting for my, uh, my to-go order. That's um, takeaway for you in the UK. Um, sitting at a table, there's family seated uh, next to me, and the dad nodded my way as I sat down, and I smiled back. And then, and then the dad looked at me, and he said, hey, did you get the fajitas? They're excellent here. And I looked back at him, and I said, yeah, of course I got the fajitas. Yeah, they're, they're great. Now, if you're not from Texas, you don't know, but um, the most firm foundation for any friendship is Tex-Mex food. And so we're now friends, right? I mean, this, this, is, this is the law in Texas. And, and, uh, and so, we, so we, we visited through the whole time. It was a long wait. I was waiting a long time. And, and, uh, and they kept saying stuff. Every now and then I'd look over. And the little kids kept waving at me. And I'd wave back at little kids. Everything was just, just another wonderful day in the paradise that is Frisco, Texas. Until. Until. Their little girl. She's about four years old. She got up and took two steps toward my table and said two syllables, hello. And all hell without the O broke loose. In a flurry, I still can't really even fathom, the mom suddenly burst into tears, picked up the girl, grabbed her, lassoed the boy, and ran, I mean ran to the parking lot. The dad sat there and glared at me. I, all I could think was they must have, Maybe they'd gone through a kidnapping or something. And so I just, I just sat and, and prayed for them for what seemed an eternity until finally my number was called and I, I got my lunch and I left. Dad followed me out to the parking lot. Thinking that my number was maybe up in a different way, I looked at him and said, hey, what can I do for you, Fajita brother? And he looked at me and through gritted teeth, I'll never forget this, he said, don't ever let anyone else's kid talk to you. And I maybe foolishly but somewhat boldly said, um, thanks for the advice. That's really kind of beyond my control. And he tensed up and I, I went ahead and plowed ahead and I said, have you guys by any chance been through some kind of trauma? Has, has, there, has, has something happened? And he said, and I quote, no, and we aren't going to. This is a really dangerous world. Spittle was flying off his lips. And my job is to protect my family from everything. And, and I, I said, this is of the Holy Spirit. I would never have thought of that. I just suddenly said, could I, could I pray for you about that? And he said, he suddenly just, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> so I so I, I prayed for him. I, I really prayed for that family to, to rest in God's hand. You ready for the weirdest part of this weird day? After I finished praying, he looked at me and said, thanks, man, and shook my hand and walked away. <laughs> now that, my friends, was a very irregular person. <laughs> irregular people like that are incredibly difficult. Even, even a quick surface engagement at a restaurant becomes a melodrama when strange people are involved. Now, in our current era, I... I find four main categories of irregular folks. By the way, that's the, uh, that's the headline you'll see in our notes. They're accessible online or in the bulletin you got when you came in here. Four main categories of irregular folks. People driven by fear, people with mental disability, those who are contentious, and those who are destructive. Open your Bible to Proverbs. We're going to meet the first type, those who are driven by fear. Proverbs chapter 29 lays out the trap of fearful living, the trap of fearful living. Proverbs 29, uh, open your Bible there. Proverbs 29, let's go to verse 25. 
The fear of mankind is a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is protected. That seems to be what was consuming the poor family at the taco place. They were driven by fear. So frightened of humans, they were trapped. Now listen, when one is driven by fear, you are always searching for something else over which to panic. Always. Almost without realizing what happens is we forget that there is a sovereign God who acts in ways we can't fathom, and we instead think, like that poor dad did, that our safety is all up to us. Now, when this happens to you, it makes you a very, very self-centered person. It's a, it's a tricky kind of self-centeredness because, because your focus is so outward, it's really hard to notice that you're actually making everything all about you. If, I, if I'm driven by fear, I spend all my energy consumed with what, with what others are doing or might do to harm me. I never realize the inherent lack of, of faith that is in that foolishness. And before I realize it, here's what's happened. I've become a difficult person. Although, in my mind, everybody else, they're all the difficult people, not me. No one ever displayed this better than Tony Shalhoub in his portrayal of the character Mr. Monk. Anybody here, raise your hand if you've ever seen an episode of the TV show Monk. Okay, just about all of you have. Look at that list of fears. That's what made Adrian Monk a very irregular person. Aren't you glad we're not like that? Parents, you ever look at the baby monitor for long, concerned periods for no reason whatsoever? You homeowners ever pull up your, uh, your ring camera readout multiple times a day? You ever, you ever go back online to check your social media posts to make sure nobody's saying anything negative about them? You ever, you ever have a little panic attack, your heart rate go up when you see other people far away from you shaking hands during a pandemic, right? Need I go on? Now, all those things, baby monitors, hand washing, those are fine. But look at the text. We become ever more trapped when we practice even fine things outside of trust in God. When we don't actively trust the Lord, look what Proverbs 29 is saying. When we don't actually trust the Lord, we actually lose protection. It's the exact opposite of what we're trying to do. Of course, that great old TV show, Monk, introduces a second category. Second category of difficult people, those with a mental disorder. Jeremiah 14, excellent example. Now, Jeremiah 14 is about false prophets, but look at what Jeremiah says, 14, 14. The Lord said to me, these prophets are prophesying a lie in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, worthless divination, and here's the key phrase, the deceit of their own minds. All hearts and minds are deceitful, something Jeremiah points out elsewhere. But there are certain scenarios where a mind just can't be trusted. The, the human brain malfunctions in such a dramatic way that false visions arise, and the poor seer can't discern the deceit. Have you, have you ever played the, uh, the silly spin-around game, uh, usually done at camp or something, where you have this relay, and, and everybody runs, and they put their head on a bat, and they run around in circles like 20 times, you know? Have you ever, you ever played that game? And then when the person's done, after spinning around 20 times, they try to then walk in a straight line, and they, they can't, right? It is impossible. The gyroscope in the human brain gets temporarily addled such that the person cannot trust their own senses. They think they're walking straightly, and they absolutely cannot. That, my friends, is a very good picture of what it's like to struggle with mental illness or a mental developmental problem. From common neuroses like anxiety and depression to psychoses like bipolar disorder, the mentally ill person has to learn not to trust her brain 
because much of the time it speaks in false visions. And while we have great compassion on the person with a mental disorder, just as we should have great compassion on the person who's driven by fear, the fact remains that relationships with mentally ill people are incredibly difficult. More than anything else, it is exhausting to be in relationship with one who is mentally ill, especially if that person won't engage in a medical health program. Many of you know that we deal with severe mental illness in my family, and it's hard. Now, by God's grace, we, we prosper in that daily battle. We really do, but it is not for the faint of heart. Flip over to Proverbs 26. Go back just a few pages to the left in your Bible. Proverbs 26, and let's read verses 20 and 21. Proverbs 26, 20 and 21. Here's our third category. Without wood, fire goes out. Without a gossip, conflict dies down. As charcoal for embers and wood for fire, so is a quarrelsome person for kindling strife. Here's the third category of difficult souls, contentious people. By the way, Proverbs 21 gives an addendum to these contentious people by saying, better to live in a corner of a roof than to share a house with a nagging wife. There are people who just love to argue. They pick fights. Last Friday, there was a brawl in a restaurant only a few miles from where I am standing. Both of the fighters were arrested. Both of them, in the middle of a restaurant on Friday night, both of them were arrested for fighting and taken to jail. Do you know what provoked the altercation? One guy looked across the restaurant at another guy and said, put on your mask! And we all sniff once again, and we cluck and say, thank goodness we're not like that. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. But if not... It's only because we've learned how to be contentious in a more socially applauded way, right? Right? OMG, some jerk just ran past me without a mask. Here's his picture. Everybody, everybody, look him up so you can shame him. Find out his company and get him fired. Get on this, PayPal. Right? Honesty time. Have you, since many of you are from the American South, have you ever said something that was attacking about another person but then added at the end, bless his heart? Now, if you don't know South, South language, Southerners, when they say bless your heart, they're calling you an idiot. That's what it means, all right? Have you ever posted on social media with anger in your heart? Maybe not in your words, but just in your heart. Things like, how hard is it to do Carline correctly? You ever go back and add fuel to an argument that was dying down, right? This happens a lot of times in the home. It's happened in our home, a dispute. A dispute is finally settling down to where real discussion can take place, and I go charging back in and say, and another thing! That helps, right? If you have done any of those contentious things or any other kind of pugnaciousness, if you've ever shown pugnaciousness in any way, do yourself a favor right now. This is important for your soul. Raise your hand and confess it right now. If you have been contentious, raise your hand. Raise your hand. Thank you. <laughs> I, I know you. Thank you. Thank you. Let me show you why it is so important to confess that. There is one trait, there's one trait that hinders the argumentative person more than any other, and that is the insecure inability to admit that he is wrong. That, that, will, that will stop you in your tracks. We, we're going to unfold humility more in a moment, but I want you to notice this. If you want to be free from a contentious spirit in your own soul, you must first humbly attack the log in your own eye. 
Our final group of difficult souls are deconstructionists. Deconstructionists, these have always been present in human history. They're, They're somewhat ascendant right now in American society. Deconstructionists are only happy when they can tear things down. Uh, They're they're always looking for something to be offended by so they have an excuse to tear things down. Uh, Scripture speaks very strongly against people who destroy. Please, Please do not misunderstand. There is nothing wrong. In fact, there is much that is right about tearing things down in order to rebuild something better. That's scripturally applauded, but the Bible condemns the one who merely deconstructs. Isaiah 21 verse 2, it's a It's specifically part of a judgment against Babylon, but I think Isaiah 21-2 summarizes the problem and the pain of deconstruction. Look at this. Isaiah says, a troubling vision is declared to me. The treacherous one acts treacherously, and the destroyer destroys. Last week, looters destroyed the magnificent mile in Chicago for the second time this summer. Second time this summer is really hard on shop owners. I think it may have been especially hard for a store owner named Elecha Zahid. Here's why. On, on June 7th, 2020, Mrs. Zahid and her children had marched in a uh, Black Lives Matter parade in Chicago. And by the way, they marched in that after her store was ransacked by an Antifa mob on May 30th. But on June 3rd, they marched. But then in the early morning hours of August 10th, 2020, looters again broke into her store. Now this time, her brother Mohammed was there. They they heard rumors, things were happening. He was there. He was begging them not to hit their little boutique store. He was saying, look, we are are people of color as well. Please don't attack our store. Muhammad was was hurt and the shop was cleaned out. I saw Muhammad on a a broadcast, uh, an interview, and he said, um, I thought this was very insightful. He said, what was most hurtful to him was actually not the cuts and bruises. It was this comment. It was made later that day by Ariel um, Atkins. She's the head of BLM in Chicago. She said, these are not lootings. These reparations are totally justified because oppressed people deserve to tear down and take what they want, close quote. It was at that moment that the Zahid family began to realize how hard it is to live in relationship with other human beings who are deconstructionists. I think Ma'alecha summarized what we all feel. Whenever, whenever we see objects or ideas deconstructed, um, Mahalia summarizes it this way. This isn't about anything but tearing down what we've all built. It feels to me like domestic terrorism. There is no way to reason with them, close quote. Canadian professor Jordan, Pe- Jordan Peterson, Jordan Peterson, he explains why deconstructionists don't want to reason. Here's why they don't want to get along. Uh, Jordan Peterson, Jordan, I love his voice, Jordan Peterson. He says, the protest mindset is indicative of a very deep resentment and ahistorical ignorance that's so profound it's indistinguishable from willful blindness. The world poverty rate has been cut in half in the 21st century, yet the description of the world heard on campuses is that things are worse than ever, mostly because of inequality, oppression, and patriarchy. Part of the problem is that social justice courses on campuses change the meaning of the word justice from rightfulness or lawfulness into a demand for justice for groups based on the assumption that each group must be equal to every other. Men, women, blacks, whites, all should have the same income, job preference, everything. He continues, in a free society, that's impossible to guarantee, even if everyone is equal under the law. But students are taught that every time there's a difference in outcome, it's a new injustice, a new reason for outrage. The anger never ends and leaves destruction as the only option, close quote. There are difficult people in the world, folks. 
unreasonable, irregular people, people driven by fear with mental disability, contentious and deconstructive. There are some irregular people in this auditorium with us right now, and a whole bunch more who are with us online. There is a very difficult person on this stage right now. There's only one of us. In fact, in all sincerity, I am, I am harder to live with than almost all of you because at one time or another in my life, I have, I have wrestled with three of these four categories. And in response, I know what you're thinking. I you're, you're asking in your awesome Jordan Peterson voice, what are we to do? Why, what, what should we do? Great question, doctor. What does one do when dealing with a difficult person? Turn over to Proverbs chapter 4. Go further to the left in your Bible, Proverbs chapter 4. Here is a great start on the answer. What are we to do? Proverbs 4. Uh, let's pick it up at verse 18 and read through the end of this chapter. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, shining brighter and brighter until midday. But the way of the wicked is like darkest gloom. They don't know what makes them stumble. My son, pay close attention to my words. Listen closely to my sayings. Don't lose sight of them. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. Don't let your mouth speak dishonestly. Don't let your lips talk deviously. Let your eyes look forward. Fix your gaze straight ahead. Carefully consider the path for your feet, and all your ways will be established. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Keep your feet away from evil. Through Solomon. God very firmly tells his children to commit to the righteous path. That is the principle you'll see on the right side of our notes. Commit to the righteous path. This is not as easy to do as one might think. You see, those who are irregular will often manipulate you to violate right and wrong. They will, they will beg or they will threaten you. What they want you to do is they want you to redefine love so that love suddenly equals them getting what they want, whether, it, whether it, that's good or not. For example, let me give you an example. Suppose you have, let's go to our four categories of difficult people. Suppose you have a son who's contentious, okay? Stop touching your son. That's fine. Okay. Um, here's something. Um, you have a son who's contentious, and he, and he grows up, and he remains contentious. Uh, he's in his 20s, and uh, it's, it's, like the, it's like the book Angry Young Man was written about him. He just, he just always picking fights. And then horribly, as often happens in these situations, he calls you up one day, uh, mom, and he says, uh, I've just, he's got to divorce the wife of his youth. He just has to leave her. She, he just can't get along with her. Now, what does he want at that point? He wants your blessing. He wants you to approve this sin, which is sin, right? How's he going to try and get you on his side? After you say, well, now let's talk about this. I don't think that's right. He's going to say, but mommy, don't you want me to be happy? Proverbs 4 would teach you to say, no, son, I don't. I want you to be holy. I want you to be righteous. It's much more important, and it leads to joy in the end, which is far, far better than mere happiness. Right? Now, is that going to solve everything? No, but it's going to establish the principle where you've got to start with a commitment to do right. You commit to the righteous path. No, you cannot come home to live here. No, I'm not going to help you do wrong. We will not facilitate your sin. Because we love you, we will not commit to do anything other than what's right. Let's think through another. Let's take fear. Uh, you've got a grandmother, 
who is absolutely driven by fear, okay? She's texting you all the time about how you're not careful enough in your life. Every single article written about any disease on the internet ends up in your inbox, okay? That's your grandmother. Just all the time, everything's fearful. And she finds out that you have let her precious great-grandchildren sign up for a mission trip to a foreign country without you, out of your sight, where there are germs, right? And she tells you, you are a horrible father. All right, Dad, what are you going to do? Well, Proverbs 4 would tell us that you write back and you say, thank you, Grandma, I love you, and I really appreciate your care. Now, Grandma, the Lord tells us to go and to trust Him while not being foolish or testing Him. And I know that you will eventually be glad that your great-grandkids obeyed God instead of the Internet. <laughs> Is that going to end everything, yes or no? No, it's almost certainly not, but you will have established the ground, and the ground is established on obeying God, not being controlled by people's feelings. Then on that foundation, we must learn to live the ninth commandment. I want you to read the ninth commandment with me, Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. And I tell you what, no matter where you are or when you're with us on this, this may sound funny to you, but say this out loud. It, I, I have found that when I'm worshiping remotely, and we're not in any way spiritually remote, but physically we can be, it makes a big difference if I, if I participate and say the scripture. It somehow changes, changes how I feel and think. So let's all say this together wherever we are. Ready? Exodus 20, 16. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Now, why would false witness matter when dealing with difficult people? Here's why. It's because it is so incredibly easy and frankly common for us to view irregular people unfairly. Their, their genuine problems beat us down so much that we excuse ourselves and we stop taking all our thoughts about them captive. We start applying all kinds of rumor and innuendo about them as if it were fact. I want to show you a very graphic illustration of this. This is about current America. This is from the More in Common Project. This is a very large survey. You're not going to be able to see it that well unless you're at home and they can zoom in, but I'm going to walk you through it. It's a, it was a survey of six different traits. Uh, uh, and Republicans were asked to describe Democrats, and Democrats were asked to describe Republicans in America. Republicans did not have a very high opinion of Democrats. Three positive traits, honest, reasonable, and caring. 24% of Republicans thought Democrats were honest. That's, that's less than a fourth. 17% of Republicans think Democrats are reasonable, and 31% think they're caring. Democrats aren't any better in their view of Republicans. 26% think Republicans are honest, 20% think they're reasonable, and only 19% think they are caring. But the real story is when we get, you want some high numbers, here we go, let's go to the negative traits, all right? 86% of Republicans think the Democrats are brainwashed. Democrats are no better, they th they, 88% of them think the Republicans are brainwashed. 87% of Democrats say that 87% say Republicans are hateful. Republicans, 84% of them say Democrats are hateful. 71% of Republicans say you Democrats are racist. 89% of Democrats say the same thing about you Republicans. Now, some of you here are Democrats. Are you really brainwashed? 86% of your Republican neighbors bear that testimony about you. That's horrible. Some of you here are Republican. Are you truly racist? That's what 
89% of your Democrat neighbors say about you. This isn't mere theory. This isn't something that just happens somewhere else. I recently was talking to a Christian friend of mine, and I made some comment. I don't remember what it was. It was some factual statement, uh, and it wasn't even about political things or anything else, in a conversation. And, and, and he said, well, I don't, I don't think that's true. And I said, okay, do me a favor, go do some research and let me know, because if I'm wrong, I'd like to know that. He never did the research. But he did say this, and I quote, I can't believe what you say, Wayne, because I have a sneaky suspicion that you voted for Donald Trump. (laughs) Okay, what's the solution for him and, and for me? Because, because I'm just as likely to make the same kind of assumptions about my neighbors. When, what can we do with problematic, weird people like Republicans? What can we do with them? Look again at Exodus 20. Let's read verse 16. Read it again. Do not get together. Let's read it together. <laughs> the people at home were doing it. And they're like, oh, well, nobody else is doing it. I'll stop. I just gave them a whole speech about joining in, and you guys submarined the whole thing. Exodus 20, verse 16, all together. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Don't bear, the Hebrew term that's used there means don't carry in your head false ideas about your neighbor. Our forebears were way ahead of us in understanding this, the importance of this. Westminster Catechism, uh, written over 400 years ago, they particularly highlighted the Ninth Commandment. Look, question 143 of the Westminster Catechism, which is the Ninth Commandment. The Ninth Commandment is, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And now I want you to see what they had to say about how this applies in the Christian life. I, I was so struck by this, I put the whole thing in your notes. Take a look. What are the duties, question 144 of the Westminster Confession, what are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own, appearing and standing for the truth and from the heart sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice and in all other things whatsoever. What's involved in the ninth commandment? Listen to this. A charitable esteem of our neighbors, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name, sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities, freely acknowledging their gifts and graces, defending their innocency, a ready receiving of good report and an unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning them, discouraging talebearers, flatterers, and slanders, love and care of our own good name and defending it when need requireth, keeping of lawful promises, study and practicing of whatsoever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good report. Wow! That is a far cry from assuming that one's neighbors are hateful. This is us today, folks. 90% think that our neighbors are hateful. That's the testimony we bear. Our forefathers said, no, no, you should have a charitable esteem of our neighbors, loving, desiring, rejoicing in their good name, sorrowing for and covering their infirmities, freely acknowledging their gifts and graces, defending their innocency. Now, you want to really be struck by this? Let's put this in context. The people who wrote that statement, they understood real oppression. These people who wrote that statement were jailed for their faith by their own king. They lived through a protracted, ugly, horrible, bloody civil war. And yet, they knew that Scripture commands us to think the best of every neighbor, even the creepy ones who attack us in a civil war. 
They wanted everyone to be taught to be slow to judge and quick to forgive. You want to change the world? You, you want to deal with difficult people, including self? Live that out. Live the ninth commandment. All God's people said, amen. That will allow us to be compassionate, which is our next command. Be compassionate. Truth does not exclude love. Be compassionate. Listen, Psalm 116, verse 5. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is what, everybody? Compassionate. The terms here are so, so beautifully instructive. The most important one is Yahweh, the, the very first term, the one we render, render Lord. Uh, Yahweh is the, it's the covenant name of God. It's, it's a name that means He exists eternally and He exists eternally in relationship. Uh, the, the next statement, this amazing statement, the next part of it is gracious. It's the Hebrew Hanun, which makes me think of an old Gary Cooper movie. Hanun. Anyway, um, sorry. You're not old enough to know that. Uh, high noon. Um, there's your assignment for this afternoon. Watch high noon. Great movie. Anyway, um, Hanun is uh, is great in the in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's translated grace or charis. Um, this is unmerited favor, something you don't deserve that you get. Now, Hanun's used in two ways in the Old Testament. Um, when it's used just of God, it it has to do with with pardon, with um, with with loving condescension. When it's used of people, it has to do with friendliness. Okay. That's Hanun. Um, righteousness is the next word. It's the Hebrew sadiq. Sadiq means to be ethically spot on. Um, I looked this word up, and I, the oldest use I could find of it, and it was very, very old, was in Ugaritic, which is an old language similar to Hebrew. And it was, this is really cool. I thought it was really cool. Um, the first use I can find of sadiq in all of human history is uh, written by somebody that today we would call an accountant. Okay, this accountant is looking over a, a series of government books. He's looking through the government accounts, and, and he writes, and I quote, everything is all sadiq. 4,000 years later, that's still what we say. We look through, if everything's correct, we say, it's all right. Sadiq is someone who does not violate ethics at all. Fourth word here is compassionate. This is the Hebrew word rehom. Um, Rahom actually wasn't even a word to begin with. You know what it was? It was an onomatopoeia. It was a sound. Uh, Rahom began as a sound you made when you got sucker punched. That's That's what Rahom meant. Rahom came to mean bowels or gut. Now, the idea is it it means compassion because this is a love that is so deep that when the the other person hurts, you you feel it in your gut. That's Rahom. Okay? By the way, our word compassion came from that. We just took the Latin word with, calm, and we put it with passion. I'm, I'm with their passion, right? Okay, so, so put it all together, and we realize what a powerful statement Psalm 116 verse 5 is. Look at it. Yahweh is the covenant God. He gives unmerited favor without in any way violating ethics, and that is expressed in compassion. That's awesome. That's what you and I are supposed to be becoming as we grow up in Jesus. And that is incredibly important if you're going to effectively live in relationship with jagged, irregular people like me. The very unauthorized Wayne translation. Would you guys read it with me? Let's read it together line by line. Let's read it together. Yahweh is the covenant God. He gives unmerited favor without in any way violating ethics And that is expressed in compassion. Amen. Finally, folks, be humble. If you're going to live with irregular people, you've got to be humble. Uh, Look up here, Matthew chapter 18. Jesus called a child, had him stand among them. 
Truly, I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like a child, like this child, this one is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Out of the many, many humility passages in the Bible, I've always been incredibly moved by 1 Kings 3. 1 Kings 3 is the passage about the dedication of the great temple in Jerusalem that, that David planned and Solomon executed. And, uh, and Solomon, the wisest person who ever lived, we're told, Solomon is praying in 1 Kings chapter 3 about this place where God and man are to meet. Look what he says. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I don't know how to go out or come in. That's beautiful. Humility is what opens our relationship with God and allows us to be useful to Him. Humility is also a real door opener for your relationship with a difficult person. Folks, irregular people are very often looking for truth. They're a lot of times looking for help. But there's one thing that is almost always true about every difficult person. They don't trust the elitists. They don't trust proud people. When you're humble, you position yourself to be much more useful to them and it's not all about them. It's very important for you to be humble so you can be shaped. Yes, even practically perfect people like you can be positively shaped by engagement with an irregular person. Robbie Morrison, uh, I mean, Jim Morrison and Robbie Krieger wrote a, uh, a song, fascinating song called People Are Strange. Look at this couplet. People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. That is insightful. People are strange, but it's because I'm strange myself. I'm a stranger. I'm human as well. I'm not without sin. When other weirdos seem creepy to me, when all the other people in the world are just so weird, the main reason is that I am self-isolated. It is not realistic to see others as irregular unless I humbly recognize my own irregular role in the dynamic. This is where small children can be so delightful. They can unwind this. They, they often don't see the barriers that, that we find so troublesome. A, a, a little one finds it perfectly natural to kiss some big face that other people would say is really ugly. Wasn't ugly to them. Kids are humble. They're honest about themselves a lot of times. They don't care about color or wealth or degrees or party. And, and when we adopt that kind of childlike, humble attitude, we can grow. We become, look at Matthew, we become even greater in God's kingdom. We learn from, we are positively shaped even by the most difficult person. I want to show you how some of our brethren have done it. I asked our elders to share some stories. Uh, only had time to grab a couple of them. They're all wonderful stories, but stories about how they were shaped, how they learned and grew from engagement with, with difficult people. Yes, they're going to talk about me. All right, take a look. I feel like probably... I had a time in my life where I had a job that was a very uh, challenging place to work, a really high-pressure place to work. Um, uh, tempers were short, attention spans were short, you had to speak quickly, there wasn't a, you, people wouldn't really listen to what you said, you had to adapt to kind of those communication styles. And when I left that and kind of re-entered the, the regular world and it, with a different job, um, as a leader, I found I had taken on a lot of those characteristics, and I had to learn to slow down and uh, um, treat people with a little more uh, respect and time and, and listening than I had been afforded at this other place. I have a coworker. He's a manager, and uh, he produces using product management, given 
solutions to the technical people to do. Um, he is not the most technical person. And so he and I would have never really gotten along because uh, I see things differently than he does. Um, I recently have been trying to work on this and realized, well, the deal is that I look at things completely different than he does and that I really need to communicate what's going on um, with, with tact. Instead of getting into arguments about something, it's like, I need to precisely say what I need. And so um, I've learned, you know, I just need to humble myself and know that God has given me knowledge and I need to spread it to others to, um, to make the relationship grow and, and to be more godlike. Well done, guys. Now, they could have talked about me, but they didn't. What they shared was how they learned, how they were refined, even by really difficult folks. By the way, it was Dan Cox and uh, Scott Legman, two of our elders. Now it's our turn. You and I need to learn and be refined by everybody around us because Yahweh is the covenant God. He gives unmerited favor without in any way violating ethics, and that is expressed in compassion. Pray with me, please. Father, I pray for myself as well as my brothers and sisters, but I, I, I pray that I will be compassionate and humble, that I will stand strong on right not sway from the righteous path. But Lord, at least for me, I pray most of all for the ninth commandment. So struck by this. I, I can't even imagine, Lord, how many times I have let myself get away with violating that scripture because I told myself I wasn't actively saying an untruth. But she said I'm not even to carry false ideas about my neighbors. Lord, I do it to protect myself. I know it's stupid because when I try to protect myself, as we saw in the scripture, I end up without, with less protection. Protection is found in you. So I pray you'll change me. And my brothers and sisters too. In Jesus' name, amen.